Welcome to Zen Mama and Everyday Gurus. Happy New Year. It's 2022, and even though we're still in a hot mess, I am feeling really good about this year. I think we're going to continue to learn and grow and figure out what the new normal is. And so I'm obviously really excited in how I'm starting out with these four young women that are coming on to talk about how they're moving through the world in this incredible time of change. And I was going to jump right into the interview with my first guest, but I wanted to share something. I started this podcast series thinking I was going to call it Driving Change because these are four women I know in my life. And I just listen to them and how they're embracing the issues and they're bringing them into the work that they're doing in the world. So they're being very intentional and very warrior-like, you know, trying to see what systems can be shifted and what's called for now and really trying to show up and find their place at the table in that way. As I began these interviews, what unfolded was, yes, that is what they're doing, but they're also have, I guess they have stepped through some really challenging issues that are not unique to them as one young woman and what we experience in this journey. Um, we talk about things from sexism to body dysmorphia to incidents of sexual assaults. And so I'm saying that also to take care of yourself if any of these things are triggers for you um, as we move through these next four episodes. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful that they are willing to be so honest and share because I think they all want to share in a way that helps all of us move forward. I realized maybe driving change wasn't the right name, but maybe untaming to find meaning and purpose. And the reason I'm calling it untaming is based on the work of Glennon Doyle, right? Who, if any of you are aware, wrote the book Untamed. And it's about the idea that deep within us, we have this wildness, this authentic, truest version of ourselves. And then as we move through life, it gets shifted and sometimes buried. In fact, I'm gonna read a little excerpt from her book here. Um, it's actually from, she put out this journal called Get Untamed. When we're young, we're all feelings, imagination, and intuition. We don't have two selves yet. We're integrated. But somewhere between the ages of 7 and 12, we begin to internalize our social conditioning. We learn that we are not good enough, beautiful enough, cool enough, safe enough, worthy enough as we are. We see all the ways that our real selves are not fit for public consumption. So we slowly surrender to our true wild selves to become who our families, peers, religions, and cultures tell us we should be. We abandon who we are to become who the world wants us to be. We are tamed by shame. We split into two, our tender inside self and our representative self the one we send out into the world. Over time, we forget our wild self. She's buried beneath the world's ideals and expectations. Okay, whoo, deep exhale there. That's a lot, but I think there's a lot of truth in it, you guys. I think that 
we need to unsplinter ourselves. And I feel like these women are doing that. They've been through some stuff and they're taking that learned experience and not numbing it and not hiding from it. Although, you know, at times it's not like they dove right into it head on, but it's a journey, right? And they've been given tools. So also, you know, kudos to the warriors out there that have paved the way for these women to do the work that they're doing, right? Because that's been a journey to get where we are today, to even have the freedom to do that. But they are doing it and they're showing generations to come how to pull up out of darkness, out of the challenges, find the meaning behind that for them, build their light up, find what lights them up inside, taking care of themselves or at least practicing to take care of themselves. And then being very intentional in what they're doing out in the world. And you know, it's not a you know linear line, right? They're human just like you and I, but I think it's beginning to be the type of examples we need to figure out how to move forward stronger, more resilient, more joyful, and less splintered and less broken, right? So I just wanted to say that untamed, untaming to find meaning and purpose. And I really like that. I think you're going to really understand how that can be so inspiring and maybe awaken a little memory in you of something you've left behind that you need to throw out your fishing line and reel back in. Wow, I just made a field and stream reference. That's weird. (laughs) I just never really know what's going to come up and out of me. But anyway, I'm super glad you're here. Enjoy this series. And thanks for being here. 2022, it's going to be good. Hello, welcome. Thanks for coming back to this episode of Zen Mama and Everyday Gurus. And I am looking forward to what's about to happen here in the next few weeks. This is a new series that we're starting. Um, And I was talking about women moving change. And then my son, Jesse, informed me it should probably be driving change instead of moving change. So case in point right there is why I have all these young adults coming on the podcast because... We're in such a time of change. And I know through my lens at 56, I'm taking it in and I'm trying to understand what's happening in the world and how we're being asked to change or how I'm choosing to respond to it. But what I've really noticed is that these younger people in my life are really embracing this change in a way. I mean, it's their future. And their view of it, to me, feels very empowering and hopeful. And I have several people, I guess this is my inner circle series too, the the five or six people I'm going to have on are close to me in my life. And I've heard them and I've watched them as they're either in school or beginning their careers. And I'm inspired by them. And I love to have conversations with them and hear how they're taking in the changes that are happening in our world um, and how they're like tangling or not tangling, but wrestling around with that. And their clarity and empowerment they seem to feel, I'm really captivated by it. So I'm excited to have a a series with these people on this podcast. So that's what's coming forward in the next few weeks. 
And starting today, though, with someone that's incredibly important and special in my life is Lauren Havel. We call her Ren. Um, but she is the mastermind actually behind this podcast. I had the pot, the podcast idea came to Caitlin and I, and I was like, I don't know how to do a podcast. And, um, Ren had just come into our life. She also dates my son, Jesse, and they were going to school together here at Northern Vermont university. And she's incredibly talented in so many directions. And she'll tell her story of what she's doing in the world right now. But I, um, got to use her technical and creative artistic abilities. And she took the idea I had and she really made it come to life. So I'm incredibly grateful to her and I love working with her and I've loved getting <laughs> to know her. So I also feel like Ren takes my, like my ideas sometimes go all over and I feel like she lands my plane a lot. And even in the very beginning when I wanted to start the podcast, um, it felt so layered, like, oh, how do, where do we even begin around the addiction and how it's affected our family? And she was like, well, you just start now and you just tell your story when it, you know, let it unfold. So her just really clear um, uh, vision around things has helped me so much. Um, and even at, at the beginning, I said, well, I don't, you know, Caitlin's unpredictable. I don't know. And she's like, well, that's your story. So I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for her very matter of fact and, you know, way of looking at, at things too, that has continued to let the podcast unfold. So I'm really yeah. happy to have you here and thank you and welcome to this episode. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I'm really happy that we were able to start the podcast as it was, because I was new to the entire experience in, in podcast platform and uh, we were just learning it all together at the same time. So I think yeah. we've done a great job considering we were on the fly. <laughs> I know, right? We just sort of started where we were. And I guess that would be my advice to anyone listening that has that, you know, desire to have a podcast. Get someone young <laughs> in your life. <laughs> yeah. I could have done it, but boy, I'd probably just be finally getting it out. And now we're a year in. So sometimes... Yeah you know, you have the ability to do the content and other people love to do the other stuff too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and Ren was in a place where she wanted to learn how to do it more and had a little time. I do think she's an incredibly busy woman that fits a lot in. She's definitely a mover and a shaker. And so Ren, that's why I'm like super excited to have you on here and maybe, yeah, start where you'd like on your journey. So everyone can appreciate who you are now that we have you finally on the front end of the podcast today. Um, and, and we met in Vermont, so maybe start there. That feels right. Yeah. So real quick, currently I'm the graduate assistant coach at Glenville State College for the women's volleyball team. So that's where I'm at now. I'm in Glenville, West Virginia, which is not close at all to Vermont. No, I just ended up there and I'll touch on that in a bit. But um, I ended up going to Northern Vermont University to finish my last two years of my bachelor's degree in sports management. Um, and that's how I ended up in Vermont. I got recruited to play volleyball there and uh, I never even toured the school. I mm -hmm. looked and saw that the degree was what I wanted to do. And I wanted a change in pace from my metro DC area, Northern Virginia life. And I wanted to be around more nature. I wanted to be around more people that had similar views to me in terms of environmental sustainability and um, just, just everything about Vermont I was really attracted to. It was not a place I ever considered living. It's kind of one of those like mythical states that I really didn't know if it existed or not kind of thing. It's like on the map, but like I, I know nothing about it. Um, yeah. 
And I remember just telling my parents, I was, they trusted me and trusted my research. I'm like, I'm going to Vermont. And they were like, all right, it's your last two years of college. And um, that's where I was for for a full year. And then for only uh, one semester after that, because I was in the COVID year. Mm, Right. Yeah. Yeah. In the middle of all that. I know. I would say that right there, the fact that you, you just decided that was what you were going to do and you did it. This is in the few years I've known you, this is what I see. This is a woman that makes her mind up about something and she just makes shit happen. (laughs) It's really funny because in my day to day, I'm like an insane planner. If I'm going on vacation, like I, I have an itinerary and I always never do it, but like I need to plan it to a T before I like go to, if I'm considering like a job interview, like two weeks before I'm like, what outfit am I going to wear on that day? And it's just really <laughs> funny. Cause when it comes to my big life shifts, I'm just like, this feels right. I'll go to it. But in my day to day, I'm yeah. very meticulous. Yeah. Well, that's probably a nice balance to have. I would say. I think it drives me crazy a little bit, but <laughs> <laughs> well, from the outside looking in, it seems to work. So. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I know I also reflected when we were talking the other day, I remember Ren coming from, you know, a very busy life, I would say, like many times working several jobs and going to school. And she came here and I remember her saying um, that she was at university and someone was like, you want to go hang out at the hammocks? And she was like, yeah, and do what? And they're like, just hang out. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just, I came from a pace where I was, I was living in Gainesville, Virginia and driving to Annandale, Virginia every day to go to my community college. And without traffic, that's a 45 minute drive. But every single day I was leaving at 5.30, 6 a.m. and not getting to class until 8.30. And just because it was wall to wall traffic every single day to get to the DC area. And so I went from that to, I didn't even bring a car on the first semester. And everyone was just like, let's just go down to the pond and hang out. And I was like, where's the three hours of, of freaking out in my day? Mm. <laughs> I'm used to building in the chaos into my schedule. So right. yeah, that, that would be a huge switch. And I would think probably a little unnerving, but over time, probably really decompressing, right? It's definitely my standard now. Um, mm-hmm. I, I really don't want to go back to that lifestyle. I, I realized how much of my day was just wasted either worrying about something that was going to be happening or it was just me learning honestly about mindfulness for the first time in like Mm -hmm. an embodiment way. I feel like the population of people around me just were way more in the present than I had ever been. I always had to be worrying about five steps ahead and Mm -hmm. um, I just never want to go back to that lifestyle. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I, I love that. And, and so then you, and you played volleyball at, I mean, that's your, that's been your baby for years. Yeah. Right? yeah. I've been playing volleyball since I'm actually late to the game playing in eighth grade. My mom, I had done Taekwondo, Hapkido up till then. That was the only sport that I had done. And I did that for almost my entire childhood, which I feel like a lot of my coaching fundamentals comes from that. Um, they teach you the tenets of Taekwondo, which are courtesy, integrity, perseverance, self-control, and indomitable spirit. I feel like those are the only things I really care about when I think about like athletics, I don't care about results or performance. I care about what kind of person you are and and the way that you're impacting people around you. And so I learned a lot, almost all of my athletic discipline and everything comes from my time in uh, the mixed martial arts. Oh, I didn't 
Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah. Well, and so I really place a lot of importance on that. And I recommend it to everybody to do martial arts for at least a little bit. You learn a lot about yourself. Yeah. Wow. So you did that for years. And then what, what, what brought volleyball then? My mom just out of nowhere, I don't know, she played in high school and just, I don't even remember the start of it, but I remember long nights of her and I in the tennis court under the the lights in the area, just like serving. And she's like, we're not going to underhand serve. We're going to go straight to the second technique because I want you to go to the tryout and I want you to (laughs) to make the team. And I didn't make the team the first year. And then I made varsity my eighth grade year. And then I had a pretty... Uh, I didn't have an accelerated track or anything. I did JV for two years after that and then varsity for two years. So I wasn't, you know, coming out the gate and I, I just progressed into the sport and I, I never imagined being a coach. That was not something that I had um, anticipated. It wasn't until I was uh, looking, I thought I was going to go to school for art actually um, mm-hmm. all throughout high school. I was the president of the art honor society and my grandmother's a painter. That's her profession. And so I always thought that's what I wanted to do. And I went to community college. Um, I got recruited to play at community college. Actually. Um, we have, uh, we went to nationals and we had, and it was like, I never knew that junior college athletics was on that scale. And now I, I love junior college athletics so much, but, wow. um, if it wasn't for my first two years at JUCO, I, I wouldn't have been able to transfer, um, to play at a higher level at all. So that's my other thing. Do martial arts and go to junior college. Those are my two, my yeah. two takeaways for my life and my success. Well, I would say that that community college looks a little different in Virginia than it does here in Vermont. I don't yeah, it's, it's five. It's the second or third largest community college on the East Coast has five campuses. And okay. um, so it's definitely very different. And it has a pipeline to a lot of, of the Virginia state schools. Um, but so, yeah, I played there for two years. And then when I was looking for my degree, I had no idea what I wanted to do because I was so on the art track. Um, mm-hmm. And then I went and did my associates in business because I was like, that works with everything. That's what they keep telling everybody. Just yeah. do business or social media as a millennial and you'll get a job. And that's <laughs> so they say that. And then I was looking at the degree options at Northern Vermont University and I was like, sports administration. I did not even think about that this was like a job. It was just a path you could end up in. So I just uh, jumped at first into that and I haven't looked back. Wow. That's well, um, so can you tell us what falls under that umbrella? Yeah. So sports administration, um, it goes, you can do sports law, you could be an agent, you could be an athletic administrator, a coach. There are a lot of jobs within, uh, especially NCAA athletics that have very little to do with athletics that you can do such as sports information is photography and statistician. Um, mm-hmm. You can do uh, graphic design as well. Um, there's also uh, a lot of equity and diversity jobs within NCA. So uh, if you're somebody that's passionate about driving social and societal change and you want to do it from a sports lens, that's a job in itself. There's... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, jobs that have to do with the legislation and making sure people are compliant with the NCA. So for somebody that likes rules and regulations, that's a great job. Um, wow. so there, there's pretty much a job for everybody within at least NCA athletics, even if you're not a sports minded person, which is, you would never think. Yeah. So now you're, um, now you've graduated. Now you're getting your master's. Yes. Yeah. And I'm getting my master's in, uh, it's an MBA in sports and recreation management. So, and that's at Salem university, which is also in West Virginia. So tell us, um, tell me what you, what do you want to do with your degree? I 
am very fortunate in my graduate assistantship role that I am way more excited about the job than the degree. Excited about definitely not upset about the master's. I am a full-time assistant coach at an NCAA Division II school at 22 years old, which is something that I never thought would be able to happen. And that's just simply because of the graduate assistantship role. So as long as I keep continuing to get this degree, I'm allowed to keep this position. Um, And I am really fortunate that my head coach that I'm under is the same coach I played for uh, when I was a player. So that's super exciting for me. And um, with my degree, I hope to just continue on. And uh, once I graduate, either uh, jump into a head coaching role doing volleyball, jump into an assistant coaching role, or I am very uh, invested in sports information, which was that graphic design, photography, um, statistician stuff um, as well. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say you're, um, okay, you're on a scholarship, right? Yes. My degree is part of my compensation. Yes. So I'm just going to say like, that didn't just fall into your lap. (laughs) No, I... No, I, I knew that I wanted to get a job. I graduated early. I graduated in December with my bachelor's and I knew that I wanted to immediately jump into a role because I am the type of person that I need to always be doing something that's the Northern Virginian in me. And Mm -hmm. so I applied to every single job on the NCAA job market that had volleyball or sports information or game day management in the job title. I didn't look at where the job was. I didn't look at what school it was. And I figured if they got back to me, then I would consider if the job was good or not. Um, and so I just, I made like 30 cover lovers and just kept going. Yeah. I mean, you hustle. Like this is, I guess my point is what I see in you is you, you do like make your decision and then you go after it, mm-hmm. you know? So I think uh, it's just inspirational to see that you're someone that you know, didn't have a trust fund waiting for you to pay for all of your college education mm-hmm. and did manage to just make it happen um, and found all the possible ways of going about it and find the best way in for yourself. And ultimately, I feel like you do attract the best outcome for yourself. You might have applied to 30 schools. It's kind of instant. It, it, what you didn't know going to the school you are at right now, or even when you began, that your coach was going to be there. That all serendipitous. No, and I was I was at a different role uh, last semester that wasn't with my coach, and yeah. the serendipitous thing was at the exact same time that uh, I had gotten an offer to because I was at Division three, the offer to jump to Division two, which I love Division three and would totally go back. It was at the exact same time that my coach was also moving on to a higher position. So she and I were like, oh my God, I can't believe we got this offer. And we both left at the same time. And and then it was only because I had the experience prior to that. Yeah, I feel like every job I've had, I haven't had a bad job. I feel really blessed that every single job I've had has been, I loved all of them. And the job that I actually had prior to anything volleyball related was in political advocacy. And that was what I... Every job I've had, I'm like, this is the job I'm going to have forever. And I, yeah. <laughs> I never look forward past that. But I was doing um, grassroots, a lot of work with youth folks. So people 18 to 35 registering as many young people to vote as possible. It's nonpartisan. I don't care what you vote for. I just want you to vote. Yeah. And um, I did that for about two years. And that was a blast. I was 
doing trips all over and, and just get to talk to young people about making change. And I was like, maybe I'll go to school for political science or whatever that may be. Yeah. And, uh, it wasn't until I was in athletics that I was like, oh, I can have these same passions and, and appeals within athletics and, and use my platform for things that I care about. I don't have to be in political advocacy to be an activist and I don't have to be a coach to care about volleyball. I can put these things in every single job I have. Yeah, I love that. Um, and let's let's shift to that a little bit, actually, um, and talk about like that idea. I mean, I've worked with you a little bit. I um, or just talked to you in general about what's happening on your teams, and it does seem like you're you do have so many skills for being someone so young, quite honestly, like what you've taken in and learned on your journey around resiliency and self-care and just um, really trying to inspire the, the players that you're with to be the best version of themselves. Right. And Mm -hmm. I just, so just like, if you want to talk a little bit, you know, there is the love of the game. I hear that. But there's also a lot more that brings you to to want to use this venue to really do the work that you feel is meaningful at this point in your life in the world. I am like I get so excited every single year because I feel like I get 25 children, (laughs) 22. I'm like, I have all these all of my players. They're my babies every year. And it's really fun to be the age I am with them because I can be like, I just came out of this and I'm able to like give you clarity without it jaded by adult life and experience and things that seem really obvious. And it's just, it's only the real I give them. And then I just let them do their own thing. And I'm not their mom. I'm not, I'm not the head coach. I'm just a, a mentor. It's, I feel really privileged all the time to be around uh, athletes that are going into the passions at that exact time, because I can see how inspired they are all the time to go into their new jobs and to make a change for themselves and to be involved in the community in ways that they had never been able to be. And uh, just to see the the shift between, I've only had two semesters or two different teams that I've been with, but the shift from the first day I meet them to the end of the semester, every single time, it's always like so satisfying to see people like go into their true selves by the end Mm -hmm. I really like and and my head coach does as well using our platform as a team to engage with the community and engage on things that are meaningful and so almost all athletics teams require community service that's not Mm -hmm. something that we do that's that's special Um, but we don't force them to do things that they aren't passionate about So we don't like, you're going to go here and you're going to put in 30 hours and then they hate it. And then it's a chore. We let them do whatever they want to do that they care about. So almost every single time, special Olympics is one of the first things that comes Mm -hmm. up. We've been helping our athletic trainers on campus because we only have two athletic trainers, all of our sports teams, and they're working 70 hour weeks. So we're in there cleaning the tubs for them. Um, And just the list goes on and on and on. Like for me, I have a lot of my, I think life's purpose is to assist young women and LGBT youth. Those are my two, like, that's my lens as it comes to activism. And so as a coach, I feel that I'm consistently able to help those two groups of people because I have athletes that are in the LGBT community. I have, I have an access to more resources than I ever did when I wasn't um, a mandated reporter or wasn't uh, with the college. And so I, that's, that's where I'm coming from with that. Yeah, I love that. Um, I'm just, right before this semester, I guess, ended or you, 
you were reaching out to me a little bit about like, hey, I'm thinking about doing something with um, the team over break maybe or mm -hmm. yeah. But you were saying, hey, you were asking me about Brené Brown, recommendation around that. So just to speak to sort of like what you feel. Yeah. Tell me about, t tell us about that. Yeah. So I have been on a lot of teams where they assign homework or they assign a bunch of reading for people to do. And it never actually was anything that I would implement in my life. And it would be stuff that was super obvious or about mental toughness. And it would just kind of be in your face, just like be tougher, like life will get better. And it never actually guided you in any type of way to become resilient, to get to the root of the problem. It was just, you're in athletics. As soon as you step on the court, you need to put all your problems behind you. Be grateful for the opportunity. Someone else can step in your place if you're not willing to do it. And that's, that's the cutthroat nature of athletics. And I'm not discounting how that is valid in, in some uh, instances. But for the most part, I felt really like I was able to set my issues aside when I was playing. And then as soon as I'd walk out of the gym, I would feel really empty that mm -hmm. my only avenue to tackle my issues was to play the sport. And then as soon as I left, I had no tools. And mm -hmm. um, I have so many friends like that, that the only time that they feel good is when they're lifting weights or when they're out on a run. And then they'd be like, oh, well, it's my coping mechanism, but they never actually got better because they never were addressing some of those issues. So that's been one of my main goals is to try to find resources and uh, to help that issue. Because especially as somebody who was an athlete and isn't an athlete anymore, I also go through those same struggles consistently. Like, who am I? Why? What do I do now? I don't have a game to look forward to. Um, and that's all just about being vulnerable, which is why I was really interested in Brene Brown's work, because mm -hmm. I, was like, I feel so vulnerable and all of my athletes do too. Yeah. I love that because um, I had someone on here uh, a bit ago who worked with athletes when she was younger at a college mm -hmm. level. And she was talking about like all the um, social uh, or all the emotional trauma and stuff that they were going through. And she also talked about their injuries, which go hand in hand with athletics and then how it would just knock them down. And they just didn't have a lot of those coping mechanisms outside yep. of their sport. So it seems like that would be an incredibly valuable thing. Yep. What she was saying was that addiction was coming into play a lot with those, mm -hmm. you know, athletes that could no longer perform. So well, you look at the percentage of athletes that get recruited to play college athletics in general, it's, it's less than 10%. And then if you think about division one, it's like less than 1%. It's like 0 0.05, something super marginal like that. And then you look at the percentage of the amount of athletes that make it through all four years of their college athletic experience. And it's a lot of it has to do with injury, but even more of it has to do with all of these external factors. Uh, mm -hmm. They can't afford to keep going. They ran into an addiction or a substance abuse issue and it spiraled out of control by their junior year. They got wrapped up in the wrong friend group. They're not getting enough satisfaction out of the athletic experience because they're not getting the play time that they thought or this, that, and the other. But a lot of the reasons that people don't make it through the four years are issues that will persist past college. And that's what's really concerning for me is how can I as a mentor make sure that these issues that are plaguing them within higher ed, even if they end up leaving college, how can I make sure that they're not leaving with worse off than I met them? 
Yeah, I love that. And, and so on top of that, um, and then we have COVID on top of that, right? Which I know you said you saw in your players a little bit of, of some, some defeatist sort of mm-hmm. mentality, right? Because of the uncertainty that we're all feeling at this time period. So do you feel like it's intensified now? I mean, that kind of goes without saying, but. It's definitely, it's funny because I feel like I came into college athletics at the worst time because uh, I would say a majority of the work I do has very little to do with volleyball. It has a lot to do with damage control on grades because people are slipping because they don't want to go back home for this amount of time or um, that I'm trying to consult athletes that are having a really difficult time deciding whether or not they want to get vaccinated in order to not get isolated. Mm -hmm. And I can't give them any feedback on my opinion because I respect body autonomy and I, it's not my place to decide that for them. And it's just all of these conversations that I never anticipated having. I wanted it to just be, do you get a scholarship? How much time are you playing and how can I make you better? And it's really like every aspect of their existence. And I had, I just had never considered that that was going to be what was well, going to happen. And so the conversations are definitely harder during COVID. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's changed how we live, how we learn, how we work, everything. Yeah. And so you're stepping right into it at this time of change, mm-hmm. um, which I want to talk more about like this bigger time of change and how you view it. But I also want to touch about being a woman in athletics mm-hmm. also and see what you know, what your perspective is or challenges you feel as a woman in athletics is? Personally, I have never faced, or I haven't yet, I say never, but I just started my career. I haven't faced any adversity when it comes to being a woman in terms of getting a role. I feel very lucky in that. Um, That's also because I've been working within a a female-based sport. That's definitely not a privilege that other people have in sports outside of volleyball, but volleyball does cater towards women when it comes to my experience. But when you look at the broader experience, uh, only half of NCAA coaches for women's sports are female, and then only 3% of coaches in men's sports are female. So men have doubled the amount of coaching opportunities when it comes to women. And when it comes to representation, when I saw that 40 or 50% of the coaches in women's sports were female, I was shocked to see that just because I hadn't seen that represented. Mm. So even though um, that number isn't as low as I had anticipated, the representation is obviously low because I was shocked. That's been one of the main things for me is I haven't really had female mentorship in athletics. It's almost all been with men. And I love all the experience I've had, but it is really hard to navigate a male dominated atmosphere when you don't have a female mentor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So you have to kind of make your, your way to find your way. Yeah. Um, and do you ever see, have you had an experience where you felt um, be- being a female in athletics mm-hmm. played out in a way that doesn't feel worthy of that? Or I've definitely had, passing comments about my legitimacy in a role, but it's hard for me to decipher a lot of times if it's misogyny or if it's ageism. I feel okay. like it is a little bit of both, but the, I have definitely had comments towards me that it would never be said to a man. I know that that is a big difference for me. Um, I often just let comments or anything like that happen. Um, and I don't really put too much stock into them because I just see it as insecurity and I see it as people being troubled in their own ways 
So I let that go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good. That's good. You feel there's opportunity and that you've, you know, you're making your way. You are a very strong uh, woman though. I will say that too. Um, which I think probably most women in athletics are anyway. So let's also just come around now to talk a little more about this time of change and about being where you are in your beginnings of your career, the end of your graduate school, school years. And yeah, like everything that's happening around social change and around, um, well, in the pandemic and how it's affecting all those things we said, how we work, live, learn, um, and how you like, how you see even opportunities. I don't know. I don't know on your track if you see them differently, but uh, I know some of the things that I think used to be considered what you did to work hard to get to where you wanted to in life, to live the life that you wanted. I just feel like that's changed. And we'll hear more of that. I know from a couple other people that are coming on that have pretty strong views around it, but I'm just wondering for you, um, how you see this as an opportunity or if you see it, you know, what you see as the challenges or whatever you have to share around this time period and what you've experienced living through it and then emerging into the world and as you're adulting and uh, finding your way. I feel like as, as college athletics is changing um, and especially since I'm trying to see myself in the role that I want to be in, I'm preparing myself to see the long term of it. And in order for me to tackle that, I have to unpack a lot of the biases and baggage I have from my upbringing as a player before I can be a good coach for the players that I'm looking for. And so one of the biggest things for me is dissecting the differences between a good coach and a bad coach, genderless, and then dissecting the differences between a good female coach and a good male coach. And oftentimes I find myself at this crossroads and I've heard it a million times from other athletes too, is that they don't want a female coach because they're not as good. And when you probe and ask why it's because they're not tough enough or they're not aggressive enough, or they're not, they don't hold your feet to the fire or they're too passive or whatever it may be. But then you have this catch 22, where as soon as a woman is those things, they're a bitch or they're just a really, they're too rude or they, they remind you of their mom or this other thing, which is even deeper misogyny, which goes back to all these other things. And so women are at this impossible crossroads where it's, how can you be a good coach when no matter what you do, the standard is going to be against mm. you? And that's been really hard for me to dissect because I had always favored having male coaches my whole upbringing. I definitely did when I was at tryouts, consider whether or not the coach was going to be worthy because how could they know as much? They're obviously not talking or they're not screaming at people or they're not belittling them and throwing names at them. And as soon as I would see that in them, I'd be like, they're evil. They're a terrible coach. And so (laughs) I was imposing these impossible standards on female coaches, not knowing that that was the case because that's what I had been taught was the lay of the land on that. So that was, that was the first thing for me. Yeah. Beginning to, yeah. Your bag first. Yep. For sure. And then as soon as I have was able to get through that, I have been able to look at the other disparaging factors when it comes to women, which is obviously pay. Um, And then when you look at the opportunities for women of color, it's even worse And then you look at women of color that are also in the LGBT population, um, the standards are even worse. So for me, it's about unpacking all of those factors, trying to find 
which communities are most disproportionately affected and trying to aid them in any way that I can. Hmm. So speak of that a little bit more, like what, what does that look like to you when you say try to just give opportunity there? That's the hard part for me is trying to figure out how to navigate that. Yeah. I still don't really know. Yeah. And I, I just am just now figuring out why I feel the way I do. So that's the most difficult part. Exposure and representation and lifting up voices of people that wouldn't necessarily be heard otherwise, I think is the first step. I come from an area that has an incredibly diverse uh, candidate pool and my classroom ratio when it came to different religions and racial demographics, ethnic backgrounds was super broad. And then as soon as I went to Vermont and now I'm in West Virginia, that has lessened very significantly for me. And instead of being okay with that and going, oh, well, it's just different. Well, that's how Vermont is, or that's how West Virginia is. How now I'm brainstorming, how can I, how can I bring more athletes from different backgrounds? Why is my recruiting class look this way? Why am I only looking at people that may or may not look like me. Um, and m- even though I don't always face that crossroad, I'm constantly looking at that to make sure I don't have a bias that I'm not aware of. Yeah. Wow. I love that. Um, just your level of awareness around it. This is what I think, um, again, and like not only awareness, but like, how can I move that change? Like mm-hmm. through lens. So I very much appreciate that and and love that about um, much of your generation and, and you in particular. Uh, I just think that it's this, this level of awareness um, is there for all of us. And I just think that some, some of us have our lens more open to it than others. I feel like, um, you know, you are all positioned, we're all positioned in a place to create some change. Mm-hmm. And it's just understanding what that looks like. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I also loved um, how you were talking about sort of addressing and unloading and understanding yourself. And it it reminded me, I I read something on Instagram and it basically said, was talking about relationships and how they've changed. And it was like, instead of saying to someone, oh, what do you like to do? Instead, it's like, have you dealt with your shit from your childhood? Load it all on me. Like, (laughs) that's what people want to know, you know, and and I do feel like, um, you know, the, your generation, the generation probably a little bit ahead of you even, I don't know, but I do feel like there is this emotional intelligence, this awareness. Um, and I think it's the work of people like Brené Brown, mm-hmm. Lennon Doyle that have allowed us to say, you can like, it's okay. We all have that shame and vulnerability, step into it, you know, mm-hmm. figure it out. Um, and that's the, you know, that's the best gift we can give to ourselves to really lead an awakened, aware life and to let mm-hmm. some go. So we can also, you know, try to deal with the next stuff that comes and we don't just layer it up. Um, but also that we have this expectation around the people in our life, in our relationships too, and awareness, um, which is different. Like that is very different. Like if you probably look at your parents event um, and it's something that I in a long-term relationship look at and understand I've done a lot of this work, but a lot of men in my generation, I'm just, I am broadly um, doing broad sweeps here, but it is true. Like you have to, like, how do we gently nudge them to do their deep dives, you know? Yeah. And, I mean, I guess I'm assuming, do you see more, um, 
men in your generation doing more of this or just being more open to that? I feel like it is definitely more open, but one of the, to piggyback off what you were saying, one of the things that I found interesting that I saw recently was um, whenever you look at the generation before you and you consider um, that they have not broken, you go, oh, they haven't broke any of the cycles. Everything's the same. They haven't made any change. The fact that I am able to look at the other perspective of the past and be like, that was wrong. And I need to make these adjustments mean that they had to have broken some cycles or mm-hmm. else I wouldn't be able to be as aware as I am now. And yes. that was a really big thing for me as I was like, Oh, nobody's doing the work. Everybody that's older than me isn't doing the work. My parents haven't done the work. My friends haven't done the work, but the fact that I can acknowledge that I need to do the work means they did a little bit of work. <laughs> so. Yeah. A hundred percent. I have to say, I think it's just, Um, as you're growing and evolving. Well, actually, I'll also say it's like moving at a really fast rate in these last few years, you know, from the Me Too movement to where we sit today, you know, and Mm -hmm. everything that's transpired in the last three years, really, Mm -hmm. you know, which I feel like it kind of started with that. Do you think it started before that? I I think that's definitely the turning point for when I started noticing um, change for me and being, being like, I need to to jump into this. Um, I mean, and it's the same thing as the awareness aspect of everything with the Me Too movement. Um, Right around that time, I had actually been assaulted in broad daylight at 11 a.m. in a grocery store parking lot with tons of people around. And I went up to somebody, an older woman, I was like, this just happened to me. Can you call the police? And she got in her car and she drove away and she's like, if he follows you, I will make sure that I call the police. And she left. And um, the guy actually opened my car door and tried to pull me through and all this stuff, broad day, like everyone around me. And this was all, I ended up taking him to, to court. Don't worry. But I, all this stuff was happening in broad daylight around me. And I felt so alone. And like, how does nobody notice that this is happening? And it was right at the time of the Me Too movement. And it actually, it was able to help me through that time because I was like, this is in a really sad way. I was like, this is happening to so many people. I'm not alone. And then I was like, oh my God, this is happening to so many people. I'm not alone. And so that was a big turning point for me. Wow. Well, thanks for sharing that, Ren. That's a, that's, that's a big deal. And I think it does speak to our fear to step in sometimes maybe, you know, mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah. We do need each other people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really. exactly. I, I remember being in an airport uh, it's a little different, but still it shows like people's isolation, I guess. Um, my mom and I were actually traveling to Alaska and a woman must have had a, she, anyway, you know, those conveyor belt things. Mm-hmm. She fell down. I think she was having a diabetic. I think she was hypoglycemic in the end, but she fell and people just kept walking over her. Yeah. Like nobody stopped to like care for her, to call for help. And until she it was like a pile up, um, we stopped. And I just was like, oh my gosh, what is, what is, what's going on? <laughs> you know? yep. um, and I do feel like if, and this was quite a few years ago, this was a uh, gosh, I mean, Jesse was young. So it was probably 20 years ago. Um, but I do feel like we've kind of become really isolated over the years as we've become driven in different ways. And, um, I do feel like, you know, all of the movements that are happening now, all the awareness that's being brought to the forefront makes us super uncomfortable. Mm -hmm, For sure. Um, It has divided us in some ways. 
but the pandemic has affected all of us. And so I know people have, you know, begun to feel the maybe importance of community and connection in a deeper way now. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you agree with that? Do you see that a little bit? I think so. And I think there, the, if people can step through the uncomfortableness, how difficult it is to have these conversations, the light at the end of the tunnel is so much better of understanding and being able to connect with everybody. I felt so isolated in so many instances learning about everything. Um, I was deeply uncomfortable at the beginning of the BLM movement because I thought to myself, oh, I've been doing political advocacy. Uh, like just all of those aspects where I was like, how could I be racist in any way? How could I dislike this group of people I, I love? And I had to step into that and be like, how am I biased? How am I making it difficult for some other uh, person of color to step into to step into the community? How am I saying things that maybe have outdated terminology? How am I, and I had to step through all of that and I was so uncomfortable. And then I had to step into the idea that it's like people of color or any other group that we could talk about, LGBT youth, anything. They're uncomfortable every single day. Why is it an issue for me to be uncomfortable to make their life better? And that's, I, I try to do that constantly and I make mistakes all the time. And, um, and I feel like I'm involved in communities that hold everyone accountable consistently. So just being able to be held accountable and hold other people accountable, if you're willing to do that and feel uncomfortable through the whole thing, the future is gonna be so much brighter and everyone's gonna be a lot more connected. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, I do worry myself about using the right language and you know I do the same thing and it's hard when I, there is this point of like, beginning to understand um i haven't been challenged a lot mm -hmm. in the black community here um, but it's growing and i'm glad for that um but also like to begin to understand the lack of action is just as violating i guess as yep. you know um and so yeah it's it's a different way to begin to think of it but i also um am far beyond finding any resting point with it really beginning to know how to, because, because not everybody's lens is as open and, and even like the people I've had, um, I have someone very close to me even, and I've seen her transition through this to being like, well, you know, I'm, I'm okay to being really, um, very standing very strong in her black roots now and, mm -hmm. um, fence pretty easily. So it's also like trying to navigate how to, how to hold space for all of it, which is just, or I guess holding space isn't even, <laughs> you have to proactively be moving in that. Exactly. Space. Yeah. Well, and, and these conversations, I think exactly what we're talking about, as long as people can have these conversations within their field and within their workplace. And if you can't do that with your employer, then find a different employer. That's, that's one of my big boundaries is it sounds it's obviously not as possible for people that are deep in the careers. But for me, at the beginning of my career, if, if I don't align with an employer, or I feel that a community is stifled. Um, that's my big boundary. That's my I'm going to leave. Um, and so but when I was in my undergrad at Johnson, um, I had a coursework assignment where we had to uh, study a local sports team and provide a marketing plan. And uh, I studied the Vermont Lake Monsters because I was just getting into baseball. and. I did a whole presentation that I thought was going to be really bold in a way that like nobody was going to understand why I was doing it. And I did a presentation pretty much saying that if the Vermont Lake Monsters wanted to have an increase in viewership 
and an increase in, in their uh, attendees that they needed to specifically cater to LGBT youth, LGBT population and women and to a baseball team. That's like, well, I, I don't understand this at all, but I had done a, a decent amount of research. And when it comes to gay population by percentage, Vermont is like the third gayest state, mm. which is, was really surprising to me. And mm. the increase in female viewership of baseball at the beginning of the pandemic, um, I've seen a bunch of different numbers, was between 20 and 40%. And so, but I did this presentation and I was like, yeah, this men, male dominated sport really needs to cater to the LGBTQI population and women. And everyone in the popular and everyone in the class was like, oh, okay, that's cool. And then I got off the presentation and my professor messaged me and was like, can you do this presentation again tomorrow? And oh. I was like, okay, sure. So I put a couple more slides on, <laughs> made it look a little better. And I got on and the Vermont Lake Monsters GM was on the presentation. Oh, wow. And he was just sitting in our virtual class and I did the whole presentation. And by the end of it, he was like, if you want a job, just let me know and we'll we'll implement this. And that was the first time for me where I was just like, all of these things that I care about can directly go into sports, can directly go and make a change in this workplace. And people will listen. And unfortunately now the Lake Monsters are a collegiate league, but I don't think that anybody hasn't had a meeting talking about how can we involve women and how can we uh, involve gay youth? Because it makes sense. And I don't think anybody in that office with all the white cis men that are in every single office had ever considered that that was somebody, a group that they needed to, to help and assist. Yeah. I love that. That's so great. And I, and I do think that you've brought up two points that like really stand out to me that I certainly never even thought about going beginning my career. I, I think about it now and like, how does the culture align with my belief system and where we're moving? Um, but I also think I don't know that I would leave as much as I would try to instigate that change within that right, culture, right, right. Because just like in in that particular setting, they just need someone like yourself to come in, plant the seed, and maybe right. to drive that change. And I, you know, I see it happening in healthcare too. Obviously, it's become very, very um, front and center. And with the pandemic going on, some people are like, uh, I don't really. Do we need to be talking about this now? And it's like, yeah, we do. Like, we do always need to be moving. Well, especially with the pandemic, you talk about the groups that are disproportionately affected yeah. is yeah. people of color and people of uh, lower income status. Um, and so, it, yeah, it, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, it really does. And there's that. De- and I definitely I've actually been a little involved with that um, at our organization. And it is, um, you know. People, I would say from 25 to to 40, probably that are really stepping to the table and really wanting to move the change. So it's great. And um, I'm really excited that we're shifting things there. But yeah, that that was one thing that you mentioned. And I and I also think just the lens um, like for any I love that. I love that you see sports as just this beautiful lens to filter a lot of these things that I know you'd share packed a lot of passion around um, because it does affect so many people. I mean, that is a great lens actually, because there's so many people involved in that. Yeah. Everybody loves sports. 
And that's, that's the thing. It doesn't, there is a sport that everyone, even people that hate sports, you can put it on and you'll find one sport, whether it be curling or cricket or gymnastics, or there will be something that somebody likes. And I don't think that it's my role to, I don't impose my activist views on my athletes. I don't use my platform at to signal boost things just to save face, but I do constantly use my role to empower my athletes to pursue whatever it is that they care about and to go down that path. And then it ends up being genuine and it ends up being that they're, they're a representation of the college and the community and they're out there doing things and people listen to them more because they're a figure that they actually care about. Oh, that's the basketball player. I know that's the volleyball player. I know instead of that's, you know, Jane Doe down the street. And so uh, it'd be silly not to use it. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. 100%. And I think that we just need more and more modeling of that. And I'm, I'm excited to see what, where you go with um, your career and, and inspiring people like to, to speak to our podcast about finding meaning and purpose about standing in your truth, right. And doing mm-hmm. something you love, because, you know, if, if you can heal the things that need to be healed and so that you can allow yourself to decondition around how you think, what, whoever you are listening, how you think um, with your background and who you are as a human being need to be showing up in this world. Know that it's, it's nice. I think even your example of going to a male dominated um, sport such as baseball and saying, Hey, what about women? And what about gay yeah. youth? Right. So why, you know, just, I, I just think we just never know. And it's those people that are being bold right now. And, and if your gut says that something's right, or something's wrong and needs to be shifted, then go with that. You know, it's such a, I would say it's such a beautiful time to move, to move or drive change. Well, and um, a lot of people have a difficult time reconciling that sports has become such a platform for political conversation or conversation that becomes political. And that's because a lot of people see sports as a safe space and they don't see athletes as human. And they, they don't consider the background of the athletes and how once they step off the court, their life is affected. And for me, that's a really difficult thing to have conversations with people that don't want to hear about the BLM movement when they're watching the NBA. And you don't consider the cultural impact of basketball on the lives of all of the athletes involved. And they just want to see people play basketball and step off the court and they want to do their draft. Don't care about the athletes as humans, unless it's juicy, interesting gossip. And Mm -hmm. if that's the case, then those people I don't think are welcome in sports because Mm -hmm. they just see people as pawns and they don't see them as humans. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's it. That's a change. You know, people were just being entertained, you know, and it's, Again, it's a, it's a change. It's to say, well, that's not okay anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So much, so much goodness, so much um, challenge, but it's nice to know people like you are there raising our awareness. Yeah. And also like just taking that role as um, an athlete and just humanizing it and making it rounded so that when the athletics go away, yes. <laughs> the other yes. the other meaningful work in the world um, whether you're doing it through that lens or at some point when you're no longer an athlete you can continue which I see a lot of athlete athletes do now actually um and I'll even uh say I've seen that happen um on other platforms that mm-hmm. people are 
thing as a way to voice change. Like even in, I think about Saturday Night Live during the whole, um, you know, all, how much our po- politics and uh, get played out there. Yeah. You know? It does get exhausting. I, I fully acknowledge that. But at the same time, when my athletes leave and they don't, they don't play sports ever again, what, how does their identity get formed in the time that I was with them? And do they feel comfortable to live life as they are after the Jersey is taken away from them? And if the answer is no, then I don't think I did a very good job. Mm. Well, I would say that the job of the coach is changing in these times too. And you, it's like, everyone needs a psychology degree, I think. (laughs) 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 Or behavior. But it is, I mean, I find it all like incredibly interesting. And, um, you know, we are, we are just soul beings here trying to find our way through this human journey. And this is just another opportunity for us to learn and to find our way back to love for each other and for ourselves, honestly, over and over again. So Mm. we can love. I also saw a thing when someone said, well, if we can hate people, we don't know then Why can't we love everybody that we don't know? And I thought, yeah, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, so Ren, it is a lot like that you're doing and moving in the world and, you know, gratitude to you, gratitude for you being in my life. Um, mm-hmm. I also just like, how do you stay resilient on your journey? Like, what do you do for your resiliency? I take a lot of naps. <laughs> I take a lot of naps. Um, and I pet as many animals as I can. Those are my two things. Honestly, that's the hardest part for me. Um, being uh, young in this journey is I have my hands in so many things and I want to be involved in everything and I want to do the best I can that I get burnout frequently. Um, mm. But I do, I am able to acknowledge when I am burnt out. And yeah. um, that's, that's my first step right now, acknowledging what's causing me to feel uncomfortable. And I set very firm boundaries. Um, I set very firm boundaries with my friends. Um, I had a conversation with my best friend a couple of weeks ago. He was very upset about this, but uh, he was calling me repeatedly and I was busy and I can't remember. We had like a little scuffle conversation. I can't remember. We were, and I said, I can't talk to you. I'll talk to you tomorrow. And he was like, oh, that's so rude. Like we're, we're best friends. We're supposed to have unconditional love for each other. And I was like, my love is definitely conditional. If my boundaries are being passed consistently and, and my care is falling below the standard I needed to be. So, um, it was very harsh, Wow! <laughs> but he understood. And, and that's the thing is I, I have very firm boundaries and I don't let people pass them. And, uh, if they do, I, I cut them out. That, I mean, I do appreciate that. Um, we do have conditional love and relationships. I mean, mm-hmm. we are unconditional love as beings. Yes. But- our relationships with other human beings is conditional. And I do, I do love that. I'll be curious of everyone that I invite on here for this series around boundaries, because I do see you all doing a much better job with boundaries than I know I did. I didn't, the word didn't exist when I was your age. <laughs> well, I have, I have people that work within my department that uh, as soon as they, they, they say, can you do this work? Because in athletics, it's known, and I'm sure it's the same thing. It's obviously the same thing with healthcare, but you can do your job in 40 hours, but to do a good job, you need at least 80. And so, (laughs) 
if you want to stay resilient, you have to keep putting the boundaries. So I have a coworker who they were like, can you do this work? And he's like, I get paid for 37 and a half hours. And then he clocks out and everyone's like, I can't believe this, but it's what you need to do because you're the need to get compensated for that amount, or they need to be giving you some extra therapy because you're not getting some other avenue of your life is being taken over by your job. I think so. And I don't think, I think there's a lot of people that stand in that arena of Mm -hmm. like, I am going to have balance in my life. I'll work hard. Focus a lot about efficiency. How can I do the best job I can in the amount of hours? And then I can do less. So I I don't work past what I need to work, but I just do as good of a job as I can. And if it's not getting done, then I reevaluate. But that's also how I stay resilient. It's it's just all the boundaries, I think, for me. Yeah, I love that. You're so much ahead of the curve of what I I know. And I think (laughs) I was. And and I also say, like, you've come up through with a lot more resources that even acknowledge the need for any of these things. And Mm -hmm. so I'm excited for, I can only speak the journey of women. I, I do and I'm excited for women having a stronger voice and being able to take care of themselves and not carrying maybe the resentment and anger that some of us do for mm-hmm. having overextended ourselves for a long time or understanding it's an option to, to do that differently. Uh, well, Ren, thank you so much for being here, for starting out this series, for sharing how you're lighting up the world. Um, yeah. I- lighten mine up and I'm really grateful for that. And this podcast. Is- I'm so glad to be part of the podcast. It's, yeah. I love it. Yeah, you keep me moving forward. So, (laughs) all right. Well, take care and we will continue to, I'd like to have you on a little more as you go along your journey here. Okay, sounds good. See where you're moving. All right, bye-bye. Bye.